Everybody, welcome to Junkyard Theory. And uh, tonight's guest is none other than the great John Tall. He is a two-time Academy Award winner, three-time nominee, two-time Academy Award winner. Uh, he's also a two-time Primetime Emmy Award nominee. And uh, he's worked on a massive range of movies. I'm not even going to uh, go into the titles. Everything's been uh, you know, marketed on our uh, Hosts. So you guys know who he is, John. Thank you so much for joining. And I Boan. Hi, you Boan. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Great to have you. Mm -hmm. uh, just want to start off by saying, you know, it's a, it's a true honor to have uh, a two-time Academy Award winner on the show. This is the very first time you're having someone, you know, who's uh, <laughs> won the award twice on in two consecutive years, and you're one of the the only four cinematographers in the world to uh, have uh, wanted that way. So I, I, I want to come to that point, but I also want, I, I don't know if the number has increased in the recent past, but uh, that's what I could find online. Uh, wanna, yeah. Can't tell you, not sure. There. <laughs> be, a good, be a good research subject. Well, that's at least what I found mm -hmm. up on IMDb. So let's let's stick with that. Well, it must be true if it's on IMDb. It's got to be true. Yeah. I want to come to uh, you know winning Academy Awards and all of that brave heart uh, legends of the fall. But before that, let's start right at the beginning. How did you get into the film industry? Um, very indirectly, and um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is uh, in sort of in the middle of the country, the Midwest. And when I was 19, I decided to, I did not, I was not attending university. I decided to look for something to do. And uh, my older sister lived in, in California, Los Angeles. So I decided to come to Los Angeles. And I, um, at the time I had very limited economic resources. And I wasn't sure how I was going. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is in the mid, middle of the country, Midwest. So I was not sure how I was going to get to California. But at that, this, this is in the early 1960s. And at that time, um, people used to drive back and forth from the East Coast to uh, California seasonally during the, you know, the warmer, the colder months in the, in the, in the, in the Midwest, warmer months in California. And people who would make this drive would put ads in newspapers, take riders to California. They would they would take riders with them to California if you shared the gas. So that was sort of the most economical way to get from the eastern part of the country to California. So I answered an ad in a newspaper, and, uh, and this is in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, this person said, okay, I'm leaving on Friday night. Come to my house and and we're going to drive to California. So I drove to this person's house. <clears throat> I didn't know him. I had no idea who he was. And there were two other people there who were also going to ride. So four of us got into this 1962 Chevy convertible and, and from Cleveland, Ohio, and drove to L.A. nonstop. You know, we took turns driving and which we just which is unheard of today. I mean, you would never do this today because you would never never take that risk. But it, it this is like nineteen sixty-two, so um it was it was much more common and safer to do it at that time. So I uh drove to California from Los Angeles, from Cleveland, Ohio. We we drove nonstop, never stopped, take turns driving. We made it like in 48 hours, and uh, which was quite an adventure. So that's how I came to California no, with no idea what I was going to do when I got here. And um, <clears throat> although I did have, uh, my sister lived here, so there, there was a, there was some protection, insulation. It wasn't like completely on my own. But I got a job uh, and proceeded to work here, stayed working for a while. And my sister was married to a person who was working in the film industry. He was a production manager. So I eventually uh, acquired a job working as a PA at a documentary film company. And while I was attending, I started going to college, university in LA. 
working part-time at this uh, documentary film company. And as a PA, I got involved with the documentary crews. I had always been interested in photography. I started to learn about 16 millimeter film cameras and eventually became a camera assistant and then worked my way through the system as a camera assistant, camera operator, and eventually director of photography. Quite a journey. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was great fun. And the fact that I had not been exposed to filmmaking at all until that time, and then it was all sort of brand new to me. And I was, I was a sponge and it was great. And, and the idea of sort of the flexibility and sort of loose character of documentary filmmaking really appealed to me. And um, I think that sort of, I never quite, <laughs> never quite got out of that mode in terms of when I when I started working in other types of filmmaking, sort of that stylistic mode was always what influenced my approach to the work as a, as sort of a, as, as opposed to a more rigid, organized approach. I always enjoyed the, the fluidity and the sort of the spontaneity of documentary filmmaking. That's, that's a very uh, interesting part, uh, element that you mentioned because, uh, you know, uh, most of the cinematographers that I've had on the show, they are very meticulous in their, uh, you know, prep. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure you prep as well, but your approach is, you know, like you say, you come from a documentary film background <clears throat> and you like the whole fluidity and the spontaneity of uh, the, you know, the, the situation. So talk to me a little bit about how you prep for uh, a movie. What's it like? Well, uh... Every, every film is different and it's completely dependent on the people you're working with and, and for cinematographers, that means a director. So you are, you need to be flexible in your approach to the work. And uh, I've never worked with two, two directors who work the same way. So you, you make adjustments and you bring your own particular style to a project in your talent, but you're trying to it's like getting married, basically. You know, people, everyone has to make some sort of adjustment, and um, it's a temporary marriage. But you know, I, I bring my talents, and I and I try to adjust to every situation. But I'm I'm not the best cinematographer for every situation. You know, it's like I have more. I can contribute more in some situations than I can in others, and I think that the it's vitally important that everyone understand sort of that, the nature of that, those talents in that relationship before getting in, involved in a project, you know? And I think that's something that you try to to explain and determine when you first meet a director in an interview. The process is basically if a director is looking for a cinematographer and he's not quite sure who that cinematographer or director, they might not sure who that cinematographer is, then they'll meet a, a, a number of people. And you, know, you go through an interview process. And during the interview process, everyone tries to determine what that re working relationship would be and what the contribution of a cinematographer could be to a particular project. So uh, hopefully within that interview process, everyone has a good understanding of you know the the various uh, the various approach individuals might take, and what can be expected in terms of the working relationship. And you know, it's it's like applying for a job. You know, it's like you everyone tries to figure out if that applicant is the best person for the job. And it's I mean, it's no different in the film business. That's what happens when directors who are looking for a cinematographer they interview a lot of people and they based on a lot of factors, a person's hist work history and, and their visual style is one of them. But that's sort of the process. And what was the question? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, that, uh, you kind of uh, did answer it in a certain way, but I was more uh, inclined to ask about the, the, prep, the preparation process. How do you prepare in like pre-production? Like how do you, as a cinematographer, how do you read the screenplay? And, how do you well, start prepping for? Well, I mean, you 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 read a screenplay like you like you read a book, and you know, and you 
even when you read a book and a screenplay, you're trying to visualize how you translate those ideas into images. And um, and that's what happens when you get into an interview with a director. You're you're, you're discussing ideas for the translation of, of the ideas of the script into specific images. And um, you know that that's that's the process. And it's it doesn't take too long in the interview process where the director and the cinematographer actually have an understanding of whether that person is the right person for the job or not. And um, when it goes well, you, you you sort of get a get a sense of that very early on in the process, and um, you get ex you get excited about the collaboration and the participation. So and, you know that's, that's 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 sort of the way it works, and 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 it kind of, it kind of evolves from there. And once you start working together, you it, it either gets better or not. And, and and you you really figure out how to make that collaboration, make the most of the collaboration that you can, and uh, you know every situation is different, you know, and um, sometimes the collaboration works wonderfully well, and sometimes you just need to work your way through it. And I don't think there's any. And there's no more clear-cut sort of explanation of the way it works. Everything is, it's like a relationship. You know, you you either get involved in a relationship, it either works well or it doesn't. You know? Oh, it doesn't. And, and yeah. sometimes it ends well and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, you do your best to make it work while you're while you're in the process. There's very hardly a middle, uh, a middle part there. It's either one or the other. Yeah, and when it works well, it's fantastic, you know. And then, and then you repeat the experience. You know? Yeah. And when it doesn't work well, you say, "Sorry, it didn't work out," and you move on. You know. So. Speaking of yeah. collaborations, you you work, uh, you know, quite frequently with uh, the Wachowskis. You work with them on uh, Cloud Atlas, right? Sense Eight, and also uh, I keep forgetting the name of the movie uh, on uh, the upcoming uh, Matrix Resurrections. Yes. That was just with Lana, but uh, yeah. uh, also Jupiter Ascending. Sorry, that was the movie. I, yeah, I, correct. Yeah. So uh, working with the uh, Wachowskis on, you know, you work on film and television. I want to come to television first because uh, Sensei was something that was quite different. You guys shot on multiple continents all around the world, and you described this as a 12-hour movie. It was a, a, like shooting a 12-hour movie. Yeah, right. Right. So working around the globe, you know, what what, what was that like? Well, it was fantastic. And I think what, what made it um, really good was the fact that I had a work history with, with Lana and and, uh, and Lily, her sister, prior to that on Cloud, Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending. So there was a, there was a definite understanding of the working relationship and uh, we had done that in two features, and then they decided to do Sense8, which was a it was quite unusual because it, it was like it was like doing a you know six hour movie, you know, it, 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 just in the sense of the the approach to the work, the, the stylistically, um, just just the whole tenor of the experience and the fact that we. It was so unusual the fact that we were working at so many different locations all over the world that it required an incredible amount of flexibility and not the sort of the rigid structure that it would be more appropriate to a feature film. Because we were we traveled in so many different shot in so many different countries in so many different locations that there was a there was a certain amount of spontaneity and and uh, improvisation that was required for that particular project because it was all we were never in one place long enough to actually you know get to settle in our ways and we just needed to be incredibly flexible because locations change in, on a regular basis um, it just required an enormous amount of flexibility that was not not usual for a like a feature film for example you know so in a way, it was kind of documentary style, but in a much more controlled way. You had to approach it like a, 
in terms of a documentary, you weren't quite sure exactly what you might be doing on a daily basis, but you just need to be ready for anything. And and it was great because I my first work was in documentary, so I you know I understood the documentary approach to work and being able to apply that to a more dramatic uh, form was exciting. And especially with uh, directors like uh, Lana and Lily, who are incredibly creative, but also that as a style, that was something different for them because they had done the Matrix movies and, and, and other films that were had a more formal approach to the work. And so the fluidity and the spontaneity of the something like Spawn uh, Sense8 was new to them, but it was also exciting for everyone. And the fact that we had worked together prior to that meant there was a certain trust involved and there was a shorthand that develops and, and basically everyone assumes that everyone else knows what they're doing because we had worked together so frequently. And it it it's very liberating just in terms of um, relieving people's insecurity about, well, is this going to work? Is that going to work? And, and we knew that we could get into situations that didn't seem to have any easy solutions, but we knew we could work it out. You know, and it was sort of the whole history of Sense8. And it was very exciting, the fact that we worked in so many different um, cities in so many different countries. Uh, and we worked in the US and not in South America, Iceland, all over Europe, um, Africa, India, and Korea. You know, so <laughs> the fact that we were actually traveling so much and we were never in one place long enough to actually get too settled and too set in our ways meant that, okay, so as soon as we figured out that location, we were on a plane going to some other part of the world and starting all over again, primarily with a with a different crew. And you know, we travel with a with key members of our crew, you know, camera crew and gaffer and group. And then we would fill in every place else we went. And sometimes that worked out well, depending on who the people were that you were going to work with in the particular country. And sometimes it <laughs> didn't work out really well at all. And we just, everyone just jumped in and made it work in, in terms of, it wasn't a formal crew structure. It was like, we were all there to get the work done and everyone chipped, just jumped in and, did it, and they made it happen which was very unusual for that level of filmmaking, you know, because I had done a lot of feature films and you know, other types of films, but in terms of the resources that were being uh, committed to the project and the, <laughs> the fluidity of the, of the production approach were not quite sort of normal procedure, but because everyone had always had worked together as frequently as we had, we just made it work. And it was incredibly exciting and cool and creative. Yeah. I was really yeah. glad when Netflix, you know, picked it up for uh, picked the final season up to kind of like conclude the whole series. Like like you said, fans yeah. kind of made it happen and that was, that was amazing. And I think that was, uh, I think the sort of popular demand had something to do with it because it had a, it definitely had a core audience. And everyone didn't know what, they wanted to know what happened. You know, it was sort of like, we shot the second season and then all of a sudden there was not going to be another third season. And so that's when the, the finale came into existence because the audience wanted to tie up all the loose ends and see what happened, you know, so, and it was great. And then the entire cast got back together for the finale and it all wound up in the same place at, at the same time at the, in, in the Eiffel Tower, you know, and for the wedding ceremony, it was fantastic, you know. And uh, no, it was great. And it was great fun. I've never had more fun working on a project. Yeah. And we had a good time, you know, just a great, great group of people. And it was cool. It was like being in the circus. It's like in a traveling circus. <laughs> and um, everybody, everybody showed up and there was a, a definite overlap of responsibilities. And uh, because we never, sometimes we didn't have enough people doing enough of these, uh, enough jobs to make things work and everyone would jump in and, you know, it was like a traveling circus and everybody, everybody jumped in and, you know, like, like the ringmaster would, you know, 
he might be uh, driving a truck. You know, it was like, uh, so it was cool. I mean, it was a great experience. Wearing multiple uh, hats, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. We needed an incredible amount of flexibility, but because we had all worked together on other project, uh, there was a definite um, level of trust. And we knew that in creativity, we knew that we could get it done. We just needed to jump in and do it. So it was fun. And it was a different type of filmmaking, but an enormous amount of fun. You were also executive, uh, executive producer on Sense8. And well, I got, I got the credit. I was the director of photography, but uh, okay. in a way I was a producer because just the, just the logistics in the, in, in, in pulling together the, you know, the, the, all the elements of a production and being, you know, you become a consultant because they're, you know, you're trying to figure out a way you're working with the producer, trying to figure out how you're going to, what you're going to do when you move from Mumbai to Seoul, Korea in terms of a crew and how that works out. So, uh, so I got the, I got the title of a producer, but it was more of a, sort of a, a, a production responsibility in, in terms yeah. of just pulling all the elements together and making it work. So more of a technical production management side of thing, uh, stuff. Yeah, you're right. than the creative. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, having shot in so many locations. Now, uh, this is a question that I've asked like previous other people as well. Uh, you know, the country tone kind of changes with where the country is located on the on 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 the globe, and if it's kind of like close to the equator, like it becomes a little bit harsher, like the sunlight I'm talking about, and all that. So, having uh, had that particular look, you guys want for for a film in mind, how do you balance out, you know, the country tone as a cinematographer if you are shooting uh, outdoors, especially? Well, exterior location is uh, exterior location shooting. Exterior cinematography is completely dependent on the location, you know, where you are, and you you need to, you need to take advantage of uh, of time of day, um, uh, atmosphere, and you, you, exterior shooting is completely dependent on the the qualities that the location offers you. So you just you you. You take advantage of the opportunities that are there, are there trying to impose a predetermined look on, a, on, on that particular location. So exterior shooting is all about taking advantage of what's there as opposed to trying to control or manipulate uh, light and, and, and all, the, all, the, all of the factors that are going to influence your, the look of the film is cinematography. So it's it's taking advantage of what's offered as opposed to trying to impose a, a predetermined look on, especially on exterior environments, because you can't, you, you can't really do it no matter what, if you, you can have all the resources and all the money in the world, but you can't, you can't change an exterior environment to look from, to look, uh, if it's a cloudy day, you can't turn it into a sunny day, no matter how much money or, or resources you want to spend doing it. So you, you adjust by, to what by you looks like meant, uh, meant uh, more along the lines of uh, the, the color grade. So does that? Uh, well, it's it's just, right? it's all the same thing. I mean, you, you can't you can't turn a an overcast day into a sunny day in 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 a in, in a color grading room. You know, you basically you either if you need a sunny day, then you go home and you wait for a sunny day, or you you shoot it as a cloudy day, and you make it look the best you can, and and that's what you live with, you know. And and, and since eight, we did not have, we didn't have the flexibility of going home and waiting for you know the correct light, so we shot you know it was sort of a in a sense it was it was like a documentary shooting, and you and you took advantage of what was there and you made the most of it. It was just a question of how you approached what was offered as opposed to trying to change what was offered into some predetermined idea. So it's, it's, it's taking advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you, as opposed to trying to impose a certain look or a feeling on, on what that is and what's, and what's offered. You know, you just, you know, you, you kind of go with it. You know, it's in a, in a way it was, and that's my documentary experience was, it was very useful. In all, in all my previous experience, I'm working on other films. And, and, 
exterior films. It's like you learn to, to take a situation and make the most of it. And um, even though it may not be consistent with some with an original concept, it just requires an enormous amount of flexibility and talent in order to make the most of every situation. So on uh, you know, previous movies or anything apart from Sensei, how often have you guys like collaborated on uh, the look with this, uh, the, co the colorist or someone like, you know, uh, on that side and uh, like from the pre-production stage itself, like shooting with that end product kind of thing in mind, how often has that happened? Well, I, I <clears throat> you always collaborate with a colorist in post-production. Oh. And I, I found that it, there was, there's no collaboration with the colors that makes sense until you reach post-production because by then you've already shot the material that the colors is going to work with. And it may or might, it may not have been an original idea, but on Sense8, because of the limitations of, of our schedule and the fact that we were in so many different locations and we were, we couldn't just stay in one location for an extra week waiting for waiting for better weather so you always were it was it was in a sense it was a controlled documentary and it was necessary for us to um, shoot what was there and we made the most of it and we could do a certain amount of manipulation but rather than manipulation it was it was trying to shoot around certain times of day we knew that um at the end of the day, we were always going to have a more interesting exterior look than we did at high noon. So there was no question about it. So when we were shooting, we planned uh, to exterior shooting for shooting at the times of day that were most appropriate to interesting looking light. And if it was going to be interesting late sunlight, that would be great. If it wasn't going to be sunlight, it was going to be even if it was overcast light, chances are it was going to be more interesting than it would look like in the middle of the day. So you so you plan your shooting around the time of day, and that's that's the most control you have in exterior shooting is what time of day you actually plan to shoot a certain location, and it's um, very location dependent. And you scout locations, and you determine we're going to shoot this location in the morning, we're going to shoot this in the middle of the day, or we're going to shoot this location at the end of the day. And that's how you control the look more than trying to just show up at a location and trying to use your equipment to control the look or the lighting. You take advantage of what nature offers you as opposed to trying to change nature. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole secret to exterior shooting. Essentially, you're living in the moment and uh, working with it rather than against it. No, that's it exactly. And then you need you need everyone needs to be on board with that idea, like uh, especially a director. And that's when I first started working with Lana, and uh, really, all their previous work had been like studio work, you know, The Matrix and, and and all the work they had done in in Europe prior to that. So, exterior shooting for them was sort of a different experience, and that's that's actually how I wound up on the film. Uh, which was uh, Cloud Atlas, because there was a lot of exterior shooting in Cloud Atlas. And it had been a while since they'd shot exterior shooting, and they'd been shooting in Berlin and a lot of different films. And it was in studio work, and it was all control, control, control. And so all of a sudden, they were confronted with a, uh, a movie that was a huge amount of exterior shooting. And the control was not... Is that control is sort of the antithesis to exterior shooting. You you can't control nature. Basically, you you live with nature. You go you know you go with the flow, and uh, that was my approach to the work and all my previous experience. And that's why I wound up on Cloud Atlas because they were so much exterior shooting. We had we had boats. We had you know forests. We had you know it was, you know huge variety of work, and. Um, that was the approach to Cloud Atlas, and and it was good. It was a different experience for Wachowskis, but all of a sudden it was kind of like liberating. It's like, oh yeah, we can, you know, we can, we can do that without being encumbered with a huge amount of resources or um, or expense. You know, it's like 
just need to figure out how to take advantage of natural light and natural conditions. And because my experience, both my early documentary <clears throat> experience and films like Legends of the Fall and Wind and even Braveheart to some, some extent were, were based on being able to shoot that way. So it was something that I was very familiar with. And, uh, and so it was interesting getting together with Lana and Lily because it was kind of like a new idea to them and it was liberating for them. It's like all of a sudden it's like, hey, you can do that. It was great, it was fantastic. And they, um, it was great. It just really worked out and they kind of like, they adopted the idea and they were, you know, great filmmakers and 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 were able to really go with it and and, and then make the most most of it in that particular type of shooting. It's fantastic. It was great. Really great That's fun. So cool. Yeah. because yeah. uh, when you when you take Legends of the Fall, Braveheart, like the movies that you did earlier, and even Sensei, like you have that documentary touch of realism in there. And that's that's pretty. It's it's visible, like uh, now that you mention it. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the movies that you've done, even like more recently uh, with Cloud Atlas, uh, even Iron Man Three, uh, Jupiter Ascending. Like you had to deal with quite a lot of uh, visual effects on set too. So how does the documentary style <clears throat> of filmmaking, in a way, kind of uh, balance out? You know, having to uh, shoot for vfx like you have to like you don't see any of this stuff like you have green screen blue screen how do you uh balance it out in that sense i'm not sure there is a balance in terms <laughs> of in terms of you know what i just described in a visual effects movie because visual effects movies are so predetermined you know mm. and um so does that involve like you know do you have to adjust to uh having you know plan things out very meticulously for movies that require heavy effects? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, the general answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, because everything is so, you know, there are storyboards and, there, you know, it's all planned. And so you, it's very difficult to be as flexible with those types of plans in that, in that type of shooting than it is with, you know, sort of the sensei type of shooting. And um, it's just because the visual effects are, they're so much evolved and they're so, they're so well-planned and they're so predetermined that you, there's much less flexibility in terms of your ability to, how you shoot it, when you shoot it, where you shoot it. So you are, and they are, they're controlled environments, even in exterior environments, unique, you need absolute control over the environment and uh what you're shooting so it's a it's a different type of filmmaking and and there are some people who are expert at that type of filmmaking and there are people who aren't so and that was one of the reasons that i, I did iron man because i had no experience in that, that that level of visual effects and that that type of shooting and and it was one of the reasons I was interested in doing it because I had never done it. And I, I just wanted to have that experience. And what was it like? I mean, it's a, it's a, well, it was, it was one it cog was, in a massive machine. So it was good because the filmmakers were all very, really good at what they did and very experienced and professional. And they understood that I was trying to adapt to that particular style. And I was the reason I did the film because I wanted to have that experience, and it was cool. And everybody worked out because we were. It was a very collaborative experience, and and I was glad I did it and I had fun. And uh, but it was a different different approach to the work, which is the primary reason that I did it because I wanted to have that experience. So essentially, you were pushing yourself. Yeah, in a way, but it was all you know. It was all it was all new and it was all different, and you know, you don't want to be. You don't want to lock yourself into a particular style of shooting and and stay there. You know, you just need to expand. Sure. And, and especially, uh, you know, Iron Man 3 was, you know, that was sort of the, still the early stages of Marvel Studios. And, and so I just wanted to have, I wanted to check it out. I wanted to be part of that experience and see what it was like. Yeah. Uh, 
like you said, working with the director, it's kind of like being married for a short period of time. And during that particular marriage, like let's say you, you and the director, you know, uh, you have this shot that the director wants, but you think there's something else that could work better. <clears throat> How do you uh, maybe, you know, it depends on the director, of course, and it's very subjective. How do you try to convince the person, you know, that your way? Well, you know, I, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's a question of convincing. It's sort of like a de you, you demonstrate, you know, you make a suggestion. You have a, a collaboration is all about an exchange of ideas. That's what collaboration is. And uh, you either have the ability to exchange ideas or it's a one-way street and the ideas are coming from only one direction. And you learn that early on. And um, there's various ways to approach it. And you you pick your shots, you know, basically it's some, some shots are more important than other shots and some situations are more important than others, other situations. So um, you find yourself in, you know, in a relationship where the objective is to finish the film and you have certain requirements that are necessary. And there's a lot of different ways to accomplish that. But uh, sooner or later, there has to be a sort of a mindset in a general approach to the work. So it wasn't like a life and death situation that I had to get my way in, a, in a, any certain situation. You know, the, the requirements of the project are the priorities. And you, you make up your mind to be involved in a, in a particular project based on the priorities of the project. And you're either the right person for the job or you're not the right person for that job. And uh, I found myself doing a films like Iron Man 3 because I wanted to have that experience. And so you adjust to just the requirements and, and of, the, of the project and what's necessary. So it's not a question of life and death. It has to be one way or another. You, you just have the flexibility and you, you adjust. I think that's what, the, you know, that's what, that's what the job of the uh, cinematographer is all about because ultimately you're not in control of every aspect of the, of the film right? and people are other people are making there are other decisions that are being made that may not be in the best interest of the, the cinematographer's interest but you know it's it's a it's a series of compromises and that's what filmmaking is all about and you know when you when it works out you are creating images in the way, in the time of day and in the way that you want to create them. And sometimes it doesn't work out that way and you make adjustments and you just do your best. Sure. Having said that, uh, you know, working with someone like Mel Gibson on Braveheart, like he's a multi-hyphenate, right? Writer, director, actor, and like he, when he goes in front of the camera, do you sense any like a uh, little bit more responsibility than usual on your shoulders? you feel anything of that sort of, is that handed over to you like the 80? Well, Braveheart was a unique situation, you know, and uh, I've never worked with anyone as hard as Mel worked on that film. And um, I'm not sure how I wound up on Braveheart actually, because it was my, it was my third feature as a director of photography. I was sort of a relative unknown. I'd been in the film business working as an assistant as a camera operator. And I'd done two other films prior to that, uh, Wind, which is a movie about sailboat racing and Legends of the Fall, and which I got an Academy Award for, but not, we shot Braveheart before that happened. You know? And um, I'm not sure I wound up, how I wound up in Braveheart. I got an interview with Mel and I went out to dinner with him. We had a conversation and um, I understood what he wanted to do in terms of Braveheart, you know, just the, the sense of reality and being that certain, being in a certain time and place, and I and I got it. I really understood it, and um, I wasn't quite sure how to go about photographing it, but I understood the objectives, and which is how I wound up in that film because I was sort of a relative unknown, and, and no one could believe that that I was going to hire a relative unknown director of photography for for that particular picture because the scope and size of the picture was was massive you know it was like a big movie when it got produced you know 
And uh, when he hired me as the director of photography, everyone said, John Toll, who's John Toll? And I was surprised that I actually got it. But I, when I met Mel, we got along very well in an interview. And I I had a, a innate sense of what he wanted to do, how he wanted to go about doing it in terms of the naturalism. And um, so I wound up on the movie. But, um, but that was the general approach to the film in terms of trying to take advantage of time of day and and how we were gonna shoot the battles. And um, I just had a, I just had a real understanding of what he wanted to accomplish and I, and how I could go about supporting that. You know, and that's, that's, that was sort of the whole story of the film. And we, uh, we had some surprises along the way, but it was all, it was all about the collaboration. It was always an incredibly good collaboration. And he was like the hardest working person that, that I'd ever worked with in film is, you know, because he was producing, directing, and starring in the movie. And the, the ability for him to be thinking about all that at the same time was just unbelievable. It was amazing. It was, it was an incredible experience. It was great. Talk to me a little bit about shooting those battle scenes because you have so many extras and then you mm -hmm. have like the key players around and like I think you covered mm -hmm. this from like different angles right like at the same time multiple cameras well it was it was crazy basically and um, <laughs> they were there were some very detailed storyboards on the, uh, about what you know the 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 broad ideas were you know the not not every single shot was storyboarded but we had storyboards that basically described sort of the the arc of the battle. And we were blessed with an incredible assistant director. And this is, his name was David Tomlin. And he was a very well-known English uh, assistant, first assistant director who had done big films. You know, he'd worked with Stanley Kubrick and uh, uh, a few films had done Gandhi, which had a, a scene that had one million extras in it, you know, the funeral scene. And David was incredibly talented and professional filmmaker. And and he was fantastic. And he organized the battles around our schedule. And there was there was a certain amount of days that were scheduled for the battles, the first battle especially. And the big battle of Sterling, which is the first one in the movie. And um Without his sense of organization, we never would have been able to pull it off. You know, there were very detailed storyboards. Mel knew, Mel knew what he what he wanted to see. Uh, there were storyboards, very detailed storyboards about individual shots. But in terms of organizing that scale, it, it was completely dependent on the organization, not you know, not not the objectives, you know, it's like the objectives were, it was great. We knew what we wanted to do. We knew what we wanted to see. We knew what the shots wanted to be, but being able to organize 500 to a thousand extras on a day, <laughs> being able to do it in a way that's conducive to efficient filmmaking is quite an accomplishment. And David Tomlin was able, able to do it based on his experience. And so it was a collaboration between the director the first AD and the cinematographer that that made those battle scenes possible, and uh, I looking at the storyboards I worked with Mel, I knew what we wanted to shoot, but actually organizing and making it possible was completely dependent on the first AD. And the fact we had such an incredibly talented and experienced first AD was the only thing that made it possible. You know, because we could have the best intentions in the world. But if there is no one there to organize all that activity, then you're you're dead, you know. And there's no most talented cinematographer or the director in the world cannot make pull all those elements together in a way that creates cohesive filmmaking without someone there to organize it. So it was a partnership with the Mel, David, and I, and and it just worked. And I mean, it just came together. It was fantastic. Organize, you know, having organized all of that, and then you have multiple camera operators, you know, covering uh, various angles of the battle and various uh, what do you call instances. So, how do you like whenever you are not behind camera, 
uh, like you don't have control of it, how do you direct the the operators like uh, on well, a massive scene like that? Well, I um, my previous experience before I became a director of photography, I worked as a camera operator quite extensively, and um, having had that experience and working with a variety of really talented directors of photography, uh, I knew how a director of photography should work with camera operators. You know? And I did operate on, uh, on the battle scene of the Braveheart. I, I did operate myself. I was one of the camera operators. So if nothing else, if I couldn't explain exactly what I wanted to do or how to do it, or I, or I, I knew that there may not be a way to predetermine how it was going to I just picked up a camera and did it myself. And uh, which was sort of the shorthand version of, I can't explain in detail exactly how to do this shot. So I'm just going to do it myself and we'll see what happens. And uh, so I operated quite a bit during, during the, during the first battle in Braveheart, the battle of Sterling and uh, and it was, you know, I mean, it was an incredible experience. It was great. And like in the horse charge, you know, there's a scene in the horse charge where the, the horses run into the Scots and the Scots have their uh, their uh, wooden spears. And um, it was just the circumstances. There's only so much planning that you can, you can, you can predetermine. It's like, doing, okay, we're going to line up the horses and they're going to run into the Scots and they're going to, so going to pull up their spears and, we'll see what happens, you know? And so we, we got, we had like four handheld cameras and we were right there in the middle of it. And it was like shooting, trying to simulate combat photography, you know? And if the, if the, if the, if the photographers were in the front lines with the troops and that, that was sort of the concept. And so we got as close to the action as possible. And, and that particular sequence in, in, the, in the film is still, you know, pretty impressive. And, and I still look at it and say, how did we manage to do that? And number one, um, get the shots, not get anyone injured and, um, and pull it off. You know? And it was just, you know, you, the camera became a participant in the battle. And that was the, it was my, that was the only concept was like, we want to give you so close to the action that you are, you feel like you are a participant. The audience wanted to feel like a participant. And the only way to do that was to put the camera, make the camera a participant and the camera operator essentially as, a, as participants in the battle. And that was sort of, that was the concept. And it was like that particular part of that scene, the horse charge was essentially documentary shooting because we, we knew what the event was we knew what we wanted to accomplish, but the details of making it happen was something that needed to happen spontaneously while the event was in progress. And that was, that was the basic concept for much of the, much of the entire sequence, you know, the battle. Same thing with once, once the horse charge was over and, you know, the actual battle took place. And it was, it was like, it was, it was more or less documentary shooting, you know, except it was a controlled documentary. We knew what the event was and we had the advantage of being able to put the camera in the right place at the right time. But um, the operators had to take advantage of events as they occurred, you know, which is, which is what documentary shooting was all about. And I think that my early experience in documentaries came into play there and it was sort of like, I said, okay, we're going to shoot it like a documentary, and that's what we did. And we had some talented camera operators who could take advantage of the situation, and it worked out. I mean, imagine, like, if, if it still surprises you how you guys managed to pull that off, imagine, like, how blown our minds are every single time you watch it, because that's what it is over here. Like, watching that movie, you're like, yeah, no one, no, no one got, so no one got hurt. You know, it was, no one got hurt. You know, it was like, which was number uh, number one, our number one priority was like we don't want anyone to get hurt. But it, so but the yeah. the all the extras and they they would be hitting. We did each other with clubs and swords and you know for days on end and nobody got hurt. You know it was like fantastic. You know? It was great having having one not one but two Academy Awards. How does that change your life, man? 
well, it did because it opened up our opportunities. But you can't, you know, you can't, you can't take it too seriously. You know, it's like, I mean, you know, it's a great a thrill and a great achievement for in, in winning an Academy Award. It's unbelievable. You know, it's like, you know, the dream of filmmakers. But you can't take it overly seriously in terms of, okay, you know, here I am, I've made it, and and relax. And um, you're lucky, you know. And it's and and I was incredibly lucky to win, uh, be in the right place at the right time, and be involved with Braveheart and the Legends of the Fall and Braveheart consecutively. And and it just it just kind of worked out, and it's fantastic. And uh, you just can't over get overly impressed with yourself, you know. And uh, Every every job's a new experience, and it's like every job's your first job. You know that's sort of my attitude. It's it's always nice to hear that. You know, everyone starts off uh, as a filmmaker. You know, you come and approach every single project as a with a, with a new slate, as if you're learning on the go, and you have you know like basically you approach it like uh, uh, yeah, every job's your first job. Cup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. every job is your first job, and it's because you're dealing with different personalities and different situations, and and that's that's how you develop a creative attitude. Every job is your first job. Is there any uh, skill that you know, not from not necessarily from documentary uh, filmmaking, but besides that, nothing uh, like related to filmmaking, anything that's kind of helped you with cinematography, some other life skill. Not that I'm aware of. I always knew that I was, I always had, as a child, I was always interested in photography. I always had like a Instamatic type camera. I've never, mm -hmm. never had, you know, serious 35 millimeter cameras. It was like, I was, I always thought it was interesting to document events. And even, you know, the, these might just be my friends at a, at a party or something. And it was like, I always thought it was interesting to just get a camera and sort of documenting event not in not in the sense of a documentary it was like well that's an interesting moment and it'd be great to have a photograph of that and it, it was always my sense of um i guess photography you know that that's what it was for i you know there was when i was a child there's you know life magazine was a was a magazine about you know about photographs you know it was like photojournalism and i always Thought it was really interesting to see the photographs, and you know, the, the sort of like the Cartier-Bresson decisive moment, you know, and how uh, a still photograph could tell you was a story in itself. And it was there was always the idea of visual storytelling, and and that and that was in, inspired by looking at still photographs, and that you know that eventually sort of became motion pictures, you know, and the idea, well, you know, it's a, you've got all these, it's a whole series, it's, it's, you have 24 still photographs a second, and you can really tell stories that way, you know, so it was all about telling stories with images, and that was always part of my sensibility, and that just sort of translated into documentary shooting and then feature films. I've heard your wife's side of the story when it came to, you know, how you guys met on, uh... Braveheart, but uh, uh -oh. the whole husband uh -oh. wife dynamic. What what was that version? <laughs> I'll send you the uh the uh, the the link to uh. The was it a, was it a about a bar fight in in the Fort William Scott? No, she she no no okay, she's not good, going then. to that. <laughs> okay, good. Then we won't go into it either. <laughs> <laughs> but I really want to hear your side of the story. <laughs> How we got together? Well, uh, if you want to go into details of, of a bar fight? Well, uh, uh, be my guest. No, I, maybe not that much. Maybe not that <laughs> But, uh, but uh, we met working at Braveheart, and she was doing Mel's makeup. And it was funny because uh, we were in London. We were prepping. We, you know, we prepped in London and shot in Scotland and Ireland. And we did a makeup test on Mel as as his character in London. And that was the first day that I met Lois because she was doing Mel's makeup. And so I was in the script. Mel's character was 
I was taking the script a little too literally. And in the in the script, Mill's character was like someone early in his early twenties, you know. That was the script, you know. And so I, I was taking that a little too literally. And we did a makeup test on Mill. And it was the first day that I met Lois. And um Mel was in his 40s, you know. He didn't, he didn't look like he was in his 20s. And I was, you know, I was kind of like, you know, slightly nervous. You know, I said, how, how are we going to make Mel look early? And, you know, I was, I was taking the script too literally. You know, it's like, after a while, I was like, forget about it. You know, but uh, it was the first makeup test, and I was taking it a little too literally. And um, so I approached Lois as Mel's makeup artist, and it was the first day that we met. I said, is there anything you would do with Mel around his eyes, you know, to kind of make him look a little younger, you know? And it's like, uh, she didn't say anything. And she just looked at me like, are you crazy? You know, it's like, but I was too polite to say anything. And at the end of the day, she uh, came up to me and there was a little, little bottle about this big and it had a label on it and it said, instant wrinkles. <laughs> and I said, what's this? She says, well, those are the wrinkles and I'm not going to use them anymore. So I wanted you to have them, you know? So it was her English way of, uh, subtle English way of telling me to fuck off basically, you know? And uh, so I didn't really try to give her any more suggestions after that, but we became, we became pretty good friends during the course of the movie. So That's the part that she mentioned. The, such such good friends that we became husband and wife not too long afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So that's what she mentioned. You know, you guys are yeah, watching dailies, day in day. Yeah. Well, we, when the first place that we uh, in the schedule, the first place we worked was in in Scotland, which was the village. You know, the early part of the movie in the village, and we were up in uh, this place called Fort William, Scotland, and um, working long days. You know, recruiting long days, and we had a projection room set up at a uh, facility there. And because we were working such long days and we would project the, the, the day's work, you know, a couple of days work and dailies. And so you see, you were seeing projected film of the work in progress. And uh, it was open to everyone in the group because we were working such long hours, not many people showed up. And Lois and I were people who showed up. And then once the schedule got underway, um, the attendance at the dailies sessions sort of fell off a bit. And after a while, it was just Lois and I and the film editor, Steve Rosenblum, who were sitting in this room watching the dailies. So, uh, and by, you know, by this time, maybe, you know, we'd be at 10 o'clock at night. And I offered Lois a ride home to her hotel. And so we became, you know, we used to, then we would stop and we'd have at the local pub and, you know, Get and have it, have a little something to eat, and you know, we became really good friends. And then after a while, we became more than friends, you know. And by the end of the movie, we were, we were a full blown couple, you know. So, um, and eventually got married a couple of years later. So, it was, you know, so funny things happened on films, you know. And that was, and the fact that, <laughs> in fact, it was Braveheart, and then, and the, the film was massively successful. Uh, we both got nominated for Academy Awards and both won Academy Awards. Uh, in fact, we met on the movie, uh, dated, got married, and then both won Academy Awards was pretty phenomenal. You know? So it was a good, it was a great relationship. It was a good way to start a relationship. You know? Short, short version of, uh, short version of the story is yes, it was a good relationship. <laughs> That's, yeah, you have a love a story. I kind of wanted. To, I really wanted to hear your side of it because uh, I heard voices. But yeah, so are they? Do the stories coincide? Yeah, yeah. Do we? They, we have, they, we they got did. our. You, you went in. You went into more detail. Okay, <laughs> we got. We've got our story straight. Okay, that's important. Yeah. <laughs> that's important. Good. Cool. Good. Uh, I have two more questions before we kind of wrap up. Uh, <clears throat> Want to come to? Matrix resur uh, Resurrections, uh, but this is something we can't really go into too much detail about. Just talk to me a little bit about what you can, you know, share with us. Uh, 
I, I, I know what the beginning of the movie is and I know what the end of the movie is. And it's the middle part that I'm not, to, not you know, I, I was there and I, um, I think everybody, everybody, everybody's curious about this movie. So everybody should go out and watch the movie and see what they think. I know Lana is an incredibly creative and, and uh, collaborative director. And I think it's, I'm sure it's going to be a good movie. Certainly looking forward to that because uh, the last time we met, you know, we went to the Matrix was in uh, 2003. So yeah, it, it is highly anticipated. And the fact that you are going to be, a pro, you know, uh, sitting in the theater, hopefully watching it as a, uh, you know, as an audience member because you worked on half the film only, right? Correct. And yeah. it was, uh, you know, I mean, Lana's an incredibly creative director. I mean, you know, fantastic, incredibly collaborative, uh, creative. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the film, yeah. and I, which I haven't done yet. I haven't seen it. We actually have an audience question here. Uh, so here we go. Hi, John. Love your work. Big fan of your lens work. So one question I have is on Cloud Atlas. The timeline in that movie happens between several years. How challenging was it to stay era relevant in terms of cinematography? Well, Cloud Atlas is an interesting movie because it's 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 six different stories, and six different sets of characters. So, um, and it happens over several hundred years, and so you each 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 part of the story was essentially was a different story, and uh, you know photographically and visually, you approach the the approach was we we. We supported each segment of the story on its own. And it wasn't like, how do we blend one story into another? And because they were, the idea was that they were so separated in time and space that the, there didn't want to be an overlapping visual style that, that, that basically blended the stories. And the, just the, the storyline and, and, and characters and performance essentially was the blend. So the and it wasn't it wasn't the visuals. And in fact, we had we had meetings in prep where uh, Frank Reby, who was the director of photography, who shot three of the stories, and I shot three of the stories as director of photography. We would have meetings where we were trying to figure out how we're going how are we going to blend the stories. And then we met with uh, Tom Teekfer and and Lana and uh, and Lily. As the directors, how, how are we going to blend the stories? And it was like, all of a sudden, it was like, well, we don't want to blend the stories. You know, the, the storyline and the characters are the blend, and it doesn't require a visual blend. So we just approach each story on its own, in its own unique, what supported that particular time and place, as opposed to trying to make a blend of a continuous blend of six different stories. So, in a way, the the separation of the stories was the was the cohesive factor, and each story stood on its own in terms of characters and performance and time and space. And it was important that they not blend in terms of the the original intent of the of the story itself. If that makes any sense, I hope it answered the question. Hopefully, it does. Uh, Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk. Talk to me oh, a bit yeah. about this movie because you shot at 120 frames per second. What was the motivation it, behind that? Well, it was all Ang Lee's idea, and he it was a it was an experimental film, and um, I'm not sure how I got involved in. I I, I got a I got a call to do a test with Ang because he was he was testing different camera systems. And in the 120 frames per second was all was an idea Aang had in terms of a new way to look at films, and the idea of shooting 120 frames a second and projecting at 120 frames per second delivered a level of clarity and detail that was um, superior to projection at 24 frames per second. That was the whole idea behind it. And um, I got involved in building and it wasn't a it wasn't a full-blown project at that time. It was it was Ang shot a test 
he was testing various camera systems just to see what the difference might be, high-speed camera systems, to see what the difference would be uh, between the camera systems in terms of shooting at that particular frame rate. So I got a call to do the camera test, and I, that's how I got involved in the feature. And uh, so we shot the camera test, and I spent a lot of time with Ang, and we um, tested five different camera systems. And I, he never asked me actually to do the film. I just kept showing up, you know. We and, uh, and sooner or later, it just sort of became we'd have conversations. Well, we when we do this, and then when we do that, and when we go to Atlanta or when we go to Morocco, we're going to do this. And it was sort of like there was never any formal conversation about, hey, do you want to do the film? It was like it was just assumed because I did the test that we were going to do the film. And it was incredibly challenging, you know, to shoot the entire film at 120 frames per second. And just, you know, just the equipment requirements, just the, what it means in terms of lighting, you know, because the higher the frame rate, you need, you need more exposure. So you need more lighting. And the, um, it was incredibly challenging because just because of the nature of the environments, you know, the, the football field. We and we lit that entire football field and that that halftime show was like it was a massive amount of lighting and incredibly challenging. And the fact that we pulled it off and pulled it together was a major accomplishment. And then we went to Morocco to shoot the uh, the war scene, and that in itself was you know was a whole a whole movie in itself almost you know just because of the, the radically different nature of that type of shooting from what we did at the, in the football stadium. So it was incredibly challenging. Yang is, is a great director, uh, very collaborative, incredibly creative. So it was a it was a really great experience for me. Final question before we wrap up. For any aspiring cinematographers, what's your number one advice? Get a camera and get a camera and shoot. You know, it doesn't <laughs> matter. It could be no, seriously, it could be get a get a cell phone, get it, get, you know, get anything, but just, just expose images, get used to telling stories with images. And if you aspire to be a, a feature cinematographer, uh, it's all about telling stories and, and, and using, a, using a camera to tell stories. And, and that should be the mindset as opposed to the lighting or the composition or, you know, the, the priority should be the story. And get used to creating images that tell a story, and then you can refine lighting, you can refine composition, but just start telling the stories with images, and everything else will fall into place. And if you have a talent for lighting, if you have a talent for composition, then you're going to discover that very early on, and uh, and you can concentrate on refining those 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 attributes but telling stories is the most important aspect it's for any level of filmmaking but obviously especially for cinematographers and directors so let's concentrate on the story john thank you so much for your time today this was like really enlightening and uh yeah okay really, uh, well I hope, it, I hope it was entertaining Oh, yeah, 100%. Okay, okay. good, cool. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much again. Okay. Thank right. you. Okay. Till next time, this is John Carpieri, folks. Okay, goodbye. Thank you.